the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Wait, have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Shit feel like I won't ever make it home Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone This is She's in Russia, I'm Smith, and I'm in Oregon And I'm Lily, and I am coming to you live New York, USA. What are we doing today? Today, we're doing a roundup of 2017. So we went through all our episodes and we selected our favorite clips and we're going to play them for you now. So the first clip we're going to play is just a, a short tidbit. It's less than a minute long. And I think it just gives a good indication of our general sentiment towards liberal media re-Russia. The way investigations work is you can't say, like, that seems likely. It seems really likely, so therefore it's true, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's undermining the veracity of what is true because you're just, like, anything that has the word Russia in it, you just put on the pile and speculate on it. And so it's really hard to parse through what is substantiated and what isn't. When somebody like Rachel Maddow, who you would presume is, like, a thorough, diligent person, which I think she sort of is, is like falling victim to this Russia hysteria in this like really gross televised way that is very off-putting in male hosts like Bill O'Reilly and is also off-putting in her. Okay, so the next tidbit is from our episode on the Committee to Investigate Russia. Remember that, folks? Oh, my that God. died quite quickly. So hilarious. So in this particular one, we are discussing James Clapper, a.k.a. The Clap, uh, who is one of the members of the Committee to Investigate Russia. Is it called the Committee to Investigate Russia, really? Yeah. God, that is amazing. Next, we have Dear James Clapper, and James Clapper is the former director of national intelligence under Obama. He was appointed by Obama in 2010, and now he's with the Center for a New American Security, which specializes in United States national security issues. Its mission is develop strong, pragmatic, and principled national security and defense policies that promote and protect American interests and values. Um, and many members of this think tank were hired by the Obama administration. One of the things he's notorious for is the fact that he lied about NSA spying. And it was actually one of the reasons that Snowden decided to release all these documents because he saw the head of national security lie to Congress. And he went, OK, I guess I'll release this. And then James Clapper had to pedal backwards. But I'll read what he said during this hearing. So Ron Wyden, notably from Oregon, asked him, does the NSA yeah. collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? And Clapper responded, no, sir. Wyden asked, it does not. And Clapper said, not wittingly. There are cases where they could inadvertently perhaps collect, but not wittingly. And then, of course, pretty soon after that, Edward Snowden released all this document showing that, indeed, that was not the case. What happened? Did he not did he get fired? No. 
oh, didn't get fired. Some Congress people signed a letter requesting that he was fired and the Obama administration didn't respond. So there's one more thing I want to read about Clapper. He has the clap. (laughs) He has the clap, it turns out, which is his views on Russia, partially. This is during an interview on NBC in May of 2016, I think. This is that kind of thing with the NSA is like, we say collecting, but by collecting, that it's means a side effect different yeah. from what you think yeah. it means. But collecting, in my think- mind, means when you like pick berries and put them in yeah. a bucket. They're we're like, not doing we that. We don't look at each berry. We don't look the at each berry. The berries just go in the bucket yeah. and we don't touch we're, the berries. We're not actively collecting That's actually them. literally it's passive collection. That's literally yeah. their argument. Yeah. They're like, well, we don't look at them until we need to until we want to eat all of them (laughs) until we want to make berry pie until we want to take out one bad berry and punish it (laughs) we saw where you were now everybody understands exactly how the nsa works that's how mass surveillance works you're welcome (laughs) so this is a quote yeah may 2017 and they're talking about the russian hacking election etc this this year yeah back in the spring if you put that in context with everything else we knew the russians were doing to interfere with the election he said and just the historical practices of the russians who typically are almost genetically driven to co-opt penetrate gain favor whatever which is a typical russian technique so we are concerned russians are genetically predisposed to hacking Oh, my God. He said those they're, words. They're born and their mom gives them a little baby computer and they just know how <laughs> They just know immediately. Oh, my God. It's I'm, something about the brisk northern air, all the Slavic sour brains. cream, the Slavic brain. Yeah, they those squat things, all the time. And they just squatting. know how to hack. Yeah, yeah. You, you can hack in a, in a squatting position because you just balance the computer directly actually, on your like, knees. Actually, slav squatting is the optimal position for hacking. <laughs> yeah. That's some kind of, yeah. That should be our logo. <laughs> slav squatting with a hood. Yeah. Genetically predisposition. Almost. He qualified it with an almost because he's almost. like, I'm, he's, we don't speak this way anymore. But, I, but it basically is. This true. man runs maybe the most powerful ran maybe the most powerful organization in the entire world the next segment is a cult classic and probably mine and lily's favorite segment uh it's a clip from our rumachnaya tour episode in which we talk to a man in a rumachnaya whose name is Zhenya. from the time where smith and i drank a bunch of vodka together st petersburg because rumachnaya is vodka house you know, a little, just like a loosened little bit. Up. A little loosened up. You know, we're eating our bread and herring. We're drinking vodka. And there's this group behind us. And we're, we're talking, or Lily's talking to them. And none of them really speak English that well. But they're like, no, our friend, he's he's here. He's going to come back and sit down. And he's the one that speaks English. Our friend speaks English. So so this is us speaking to the friend that speaks English. Genia. My first time to America was two years ago. In my last time to America was the second one, actually. I was there twice. I was there for job. So I went there for work. I went to Maryland. And it was like really close to Washington, D.C. But I went there for like three days for work. And I was working, working, working. Wasn't hotel, back to work, hotel, back to work. And then... Uh, it's radio, radio business. Because no, I, I don't really do the radio stuff. I do the software uh, side. Because we, we have a company in Russia doing a very specific uh, software for radios. 
it's for professional radios. It's not like radios like uh, walkie-talkies between my, me and my my daddy. It's like professional radios between the the guys like uh, the guys in trucks. Uh, um, um. So tell me, like, why are American companies asking Russian companies to come set up their radio? It might sound uh, unmodest, but it is like this. It's a funny thing, but it's like Russians are quite smart. And uh, in my business, uh, business, the two main companies competing all over the world. It's not, it's not only about America. It's everywhere. We compete in Australia. We compete in Africa. Uh, South America, everywhere. The two main companies competing all over the world are one is from here, from St. Petersburg. The other one is the funny thing from Tomsk, West Russia, Siberia. So, so then um, at the end of talking to him, we, we had the recorder off, but then he wanted to tell us what he thinks Americans or foreigners should know about the Russian people. Can you explain what he said off record? Yeah, so off record, he was just being like, you know, foreign people need to understand that, like, Russians are real people also. Like, we're real people. We're kind people. Like, we just like sharing and helping. He was saying this because he had just given us, like, a free shot of alcohol on the table. It was like... Yeah, they were, like, sharing their vodka with us during this yeah. during this conversation. Yeah. So and he's like, we're just like people, we're just like real people. And we're like, oh, we need, can you, can you repeat that? Let's turn on the recorder. So I turn on the recorder and this is what he said instead of that. No, I said Russian people like other people. And we enjoy talking, we enjoy, we enjoy just being together. Whenever I go somewhere outside Russia, I meet foreigners and they ask me, whoa, you're from Russia. How are you? How, how do you do? And I say, you know what the main Russian hobby is? Let me show you. It's hugging. <laughs> That's what I always tell the people when I go outside Russia so they didn't know what Russians are like. <laughs> the main Russian hobby is hugging. Hugging. <laughs> hugging. No, but this is a really great image because he was talking to us. For some reason, the three of us are standing. Because we're kind of going. Yeah, we're like getting ready to go. And he's holding a shot this whole time and he's like sort of it's almost like he's giving a toast yeah. and he's like the main russian hobby you know what it is and like in that moment when he paused he does the shot he's like the main russian hobby is and he does the shot and we both were like oh he's saying the main russian hobby is doing shot like drinking vodka like whoop de doo but then he just like does the shot puts the glass down and comes in for a bear hug and he's like hugging <laughs> so great Okay, from one of our most popular randomly episodes about Grigory Rasputin, an infamous character in Russian history. This particular clip is a description of the scene leading up to Rasputin's murder. And he, he tells Rasputin when he invites him to this party that his, his wife will be there, but she's actually in Crimea on vacation. Actually, no, she's in Crimea for her health. Yeah, so, like, he's, like, kind of seducing Rasputin with her as the bait, but he's also kind of the bait. And he's like, yeah, we're just going to hang, like, Rasputin probably thinks they're going to, like, drink and whatever, get fucked up. A little hand job, maybe. They, <laughs> under the table, they, like, apparently, like, he has a huge sweet tooth. So, basically, you and Rasputin are the same. <laughs> as you suspected, in the end, you are Rasputin. 
<laughs> um, so they like make all these like sweets and pastries and like pile them up in the, in the cellar of the palace or the basement cellar. Um, oh, and they, put su- they like make like a huge decadent. Oh, like, that sounds pastries. great. But everything has cyanide in it, so it's not great. They put enough poison. They crush it up and put it in all of the pastries and in the wine in like Madeira. They put enough apparently to like kill three people, like a lot, like overdose. That just seems like a trap, like a giant pile of sweets. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm just. It didn't look like unusual. I think in the, the context of this, like of these people's lifestyles, like to wade through the sweets. I actually think I made that up. I mean, I know, I know there were sweets, but I think I just like imagining them like piled, like decked out. Um, this is also a weird surreal tidbit: is that like they get there and Yusupov is like the one who's like quote-unquote close with him he's like let's go downstairs and like hang out because right now my wife is like upstairs at a party and she'll come down soon this is in the basement whatever the like lower area of their palace <laughs> that also seems wrong it's like a dungy basement here is your suite <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a massive palace you can like, take no your way. time and eat your sweet. i think they decided to use that because i don't know maybe they just like felt that it would be like more secluded or i don't know why they decided to do that but it's not an unfurnished basement sir. i'm sure it's furnished they're like the wealthiest people in russia they're radiators down there checking along <laughs> wait but this is this is such a good juicy detail is that the other conspirators of the murder they're upstairs like simulating this party that is supposed to be happening where the wife is and yeah. they're just playing yankee doodle <laughs> oh my god like a gramophone yeah a gramophone with yankee doodle on it so Rasputin sits down and at first he's like, no, I don't want any sweets. And like Yusuf was like, oh, shit. And then and then he's like, oh, never mind. And he like scarfs <laughs> down two, two of the sweets. And then he's like, can I have some wine? And like in his like whatever gruff way. And he like slurps a bunch of Madeira wine. And, you know, he likes like, yeah, it's like slurping and eating and like everything's poison. So Yusuf was like, phew, he's going to die soon. Like he's a huge too. He's like really tall, like big guy and i don't know that's just also kind of like formidable so they're just sitting there the two of them he's waiting for him to die and he doesn't die it's just nothing happens he's like anyway and he like kind of sits back or whatever and then like he's like why don't you play me some songs on your guitar and you see it was like okay and he like gets his guitar and starts like singing and playing songs for rasputin and rasputin is supposed to be dead and Two hours go by and he's not dead. And apparently they're like, supposedly they're like waiting for the wife to come down, right? But the wife is not coming down because right. she's in Crimea. So at some point, um, Yusuf was like, I'll be back in a sec. And he like leaves Rasputin and he goes up to the other conspirators and he's like, oh my God, he's not dying. He's eaten a lot of the poison. I don't know what's going on. What the fuck are we supposed to do? And everyone's like, oh my God, let's just forget about this. And they're like, no, like we decided to kill him. He he has poison in his body. Like he'll get sick, and then we'll get blamed. Like shit, it's gonna be bad. We need to do something. And then one of them's like, we need to shoot him. This next clip is a tidbit from um, an episode we did about Soviet Jews, and specifically discussing a book by Masha Gessen on the Soviet Jewish Autonomous Republic. And this particular clip is just a little, it's us trying to explain like this sort of like phenomenon that we co- we keep coming across specific examples of and where there's like a gap between what is expected to happen and what actually happens. So to summarize the idea, it's like an aspect of Soviet ideology that involves like very future-looking, forward-looking 
thinking like, oh, we're going to build communism. We're going to we're going to solve all these problems. We're going to live in a, a place where like every family has an apartment to themselves. Yeah, <laughs> everything looks and is better. So there's this like forward looking sort of idealism and planning. And this what would happen is that like projects would be planned like Bidabijan, the project on the site of the Christ Savior Church where Pussy Riot performed um, their famous performance. That site, when the church was demolished uh, in the 30s, they were planning to build a really epic giant tower with Stalin on top of it that's like a pal- the palace of the Soviets it's called and there were drawings for that and plans for that but it was never built and that that building uh, that type of architecture it, it exists it's like part of a larger pattern um, of these like sort of like fantastical things that were planned and never made we're looking at this phenomenon and we're, we're putting Birabijan also into it as this like um, idealistic homeland or something project that there was actually like there was lots of like propaganda for it you know whole campaigns basically trying to get people to go there and explaining how great it was and then there was like this much less great reality and then there was overall like the project was overall like a failed project masha says in the beginning of that lecture in the clip you played like field experts went over there checked out the scene said it's not inhabitable or like it's inhabitable. There are people there, but it's not a good place to <laughs> build this new republic. But then they went there anyway. Yeah. Like authorities decided, some authorities. And there is a sort of like detachment from, or like a delay or detachment from reality in that, for sure. Yeah. What was it? I mean, I think that happens on really small scales across the board, basically just like. I, oh, this is the thing we were talking about on the phone yesterday. Kind of, there's this like spectrum, and on one side is a failure of imagination, and a failure of imagination is oftentimes you, used to describe like people unable to imagine that something really horrific is going to happen. So something like the Holocaust, um, but it, but presumably it could be a failure of imagination of imagining how great things are going to be. I don't know, um, or a failure to imagine a good solution to a problem. Um, and then on the other side, you have this like kind of rant, rampant idealism that's exemplified in the Soviet Union, wherein like your imagination is great, but you're unable to like realize it because there's some disconnect between your imagination and the in the actual reality of the world yeah or like people are encouraged to imagine it people you know are encouraged to make building plans and sketches and 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 even paid and and like there are projects built for all of this or like so much probably money and time was put into constructing um, the campaigns around and, and bringing people to Bidibijan and literally constructing Bidibijan, building all the buildings and everything, infrastructure. And like naming the streets and everything. Yeah, like so much effort. So there's all this like, almost all these like resources for for extra imaginary, imaginative thinking. Um, but then, the, the, yeah, there, there ends up being sort of often like this like failure or, or this break. And you know, there's all those examples of like how inefficient the centralized like state run economy was. Right, 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 right. Where like, you know, you have an order placed and everything had to basically go through Moscow technically so that people are, you know, like often, especially given the 
time period like technology and then the like vastness of the country you have these sort of like you have a lot of gaps and delays where like someone's waiting for an order to do something or like that kind of stuff oh god that like I was gonna say what keeps me up at night or something it's like thinking about for example like how wars are started because of like delayed messages and technology the issues of technology basically someone like didn't get the telegram or whatever that kills me So the next clip is from our episode about Khrushchevki that were economical and supposedly at the time temporary apartments for families built by Khrushchev, who became the secretary general of the Soviet Union after Stalin's death. And these Khrushchevki began being built in the 50s and were built all the way through, what, the 80s? Yeah. And, and many people still live in them. And this particular clip is about the layout of Khrushchevki, uh, how the plans came from Germany, and just some little tidbits about what the inside room apartment actually looked like. So the thing about Khrushchevki is that, so like, of course, Khrushchev doesn't build them himself. He hires like architects and people who build things. The model they use is like a prefabricated you build everything at the factory or whatever and then you just like transport it over to the site and just like plop it down like boop 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 and they would like build it like floor by floor just various ways but panel it's like panel housing and so they made really cheaply with like concrete and then like a brick exterior legend say says that Khrushchevki could be built the first series k7 could be built in five days a building <laughs> But that's like the record, I think. And like the the more normal period would be like a couple weeks and like up to 45 days. But basically just a shit ton. Like these buildings are, are mass produced, these like um, prefabricated panel buildings and built all over the place. And like like I think the numbers I have, I don't have a total number for how many were built, but... Um, I think it was between like 61 and 68 in Moscow alone. There were like 62,000 units built. Units being being individual buildings or, or or units within each building? I think probably within because 62,000 buildings sounds like too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say unit means apartment. Um, That's some good cell usage. My cell works very fast. Do you have a, you have a visual of the building now? Gray block. Yeah. Yeah, being built with like like, smooth. I'm picturing like smooth on the exterior. It looks pretty smooth from far away, but it's like it's like unfinished brick. Right. But I I mean smooth in that like nothing is jutting out from it, so it's just like uniformly shaped. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. So smooth. (laughs) Um. Yeah, and like the thing is, like the of course now they look even shabbier because it's been like. A minute. Um, Wait, so, so like, people move into these, and are they excited about it, or are they like, I don't know, what the fuck? No, 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 right, so, sorry, so, yeah, so, these are being built on a mass scale. I mentioned in the beginning, starting in the late 50s, and like, 57, I think they started, but throughout the rest of the of Soviet era, but, yeah, like, in that time period, in that heyday under Khrushchev, when these are being built, and there's all this, like, sort of propaganda around it, um, yeah, people are excited as fuck, because, like, the government's like, oh, I'm going to give you this apartment for your family and you don't have to live in a communal apartment anymore. Here you go. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that sounds actually better, even if the apartment is kind of shitty. Yeah. So the the concept of like private space 
had and potentially continues to have yet to be like developed on a wide scale. People are able to, just like regular people, are able to like have their own space, even if it means that they're still like sharing rooms or something. Basically, the rule I think was the standard was you you had to have uh, like if you have a three room apartment, then you can have four people, and a two room apartment you can have three people like that. But of course, people didn't follow those standards. That was like what the government said. But then, like, what would what would happen in reality is that like you know you would get your hushovka in, in Moscow or whatever, and then like you're like village relatives are like oh we're gonna send Susie there but Susie's <laughs> named Masha <laughs> and and they're like we're like oh she needs to go to university can she just like stay in your apartment and they'd be like fuck I hate family and then like oh and then like not the, not K7 but another model I think they actually had like a, a storage space like a closet which is a luxury and people like apparently people would just like have people like live in there (laughs) they'd be like like that would be grandma's room (laughs) (laughs) but basically you'd yeah you'd have like multi-generations so you ended up having i'm sure most people had more than that like limit thing that like standard listen apparently they like went to germany to like get the plans for these apartments for this like five-story kind of building and so it wasn't even like event invented in the Soviet Union and they like took like the plan for like the apartment and at least in the first series but they just like basically left everything the same but then they just like took away the closet they're like Soviet people don't need closets (laughs) because okay so the other thing about this time period and this obsession with like compactness and obsession with saving space there's also an obsession with like a standardization on like almost like ridiculously minute scale and like the example i can give it's not just like the houses are standard the apartments are standard right the shape and everything how the furniture should be placed in the apartment oh damn wait does the furniture come with the apartment it either comes with it or like basically maybe it's not that it I'm not sure that the apartments were furnished. I feel like they might have been, but it would be like, oh, the, the furniture that's then developed at that time is like made for those apartments specifically. Okay. And they're like made to fit into it a certain way. And you should like arrange it that way to like a ridiculous degree. Like, oh, there was this this architect, I can't remember his name, who like he was also experimenting with making houses out of plastic, full plastic. And he, like, even, like, detailed that, like, the residents, when they move in, will receive a special kind of glue so that they can, because you won't be able to put nails in the walls because they're plastic, but you could glue, like, hooks onto the walls. Just like, Wait, but, but the plastic, the plastic things were never built. I think he built, like, experiment ones, but. Okay. I think that that goes into the realm of, like fantasy architecture in the soviet union like architecture that was like planned and even like experimented with but then not built on a a mass scale or like not built at all and next on the docket is a segment from our mother politics episode and this is us talking about the history of motherhood the conception of motherhood in the soviet union like the overall relationship to keep in mind during these years even with the shift to a sort of like 
private slash state childcare mentality is that still the overall thing is that parents, even the mother, are kind of like mistrusted to raise kids. Like kids should be raised to be like ideal communist beings, meaning that ideally they'd be raised like with special educators and stuff, not just like some random parents. Not just any schmuck that got pregnant. Yeah. But then you have all these other things like the relationship to abortion. Like abortion was always like regulated by the state in some way. But in the 20s, it was totally like legal. And a lot of people were getting abortions because that was like their main form of birth control. Yeah. I wonder what the forefront of birth control was at that point. Like what was American birth control like? I mean, people were wearing condoms, lamb Sheep skin. skin. <laughs> That's like the only thing we know. Yeah. <laughs> they were using lambskin condoms, I believe. <laughs> Our favorite fact. Yeah. In the 20s, there was even like this, you know, we're all equal and we are just going to be people who, again, as I said, like if the state will take care of babies, we're not going to be burdened by this like bourgeois family structure where we like, we're a couple and we live at home and we fight and shit gets bad and then <laughs> the kids get psychologically fucked up from that, which is like what we just continue to do. Yeah. I mean, it's but fun. because the communal thing, like they're like, oh, well, the babies didn't even get to the point to be psychologically fucked up. They just like died when they were eight months old because some homeless lady wasn't producing enough milk <laughs> but if they i mean but like you could try i mean I'm not i know I'm not you always go back to this, this as if like socialized child raising is practical or even necessarily a good thing it's not necessarily practical but it's definitely more like mortality rate would be lower at this point <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's give it a yeah. whirl again <laughs> shall we it's a 21st century but yeah basically the 30s the overall characteristics of the 30s is that like there started to be more stringent regulation from the government so abortion was banned entirely which sucks because then people were doing like home abortions and dying and stuff all right so so tell I, i'm curious about this like shift to this like weird idea of the motherland slash the mother and how like the motherland really interrelates with motherhood itself i don't know exactly how i can articulate it but if there's one sort of like stable thing throughout the Soviet years it's that there's an explicitly discussed conception of reproduction is like holy holy yeah but it's okay so holy comes second first of all it's it's a function like of the state it's like has a purpose right producing more communists and that's this like state mother child relationship because from that you infer that a woman's body like when we now are like chanting like my body my choice like <laughs> your body your body not your choice your body <laughs> communist state choice <laughs> exactly this is why people get confused when they're all like so over yours was like feminist because it's unburdening women from childcare. it's like yeah but your body's like an instrument for making babies like your highest value as a woman is to produce as a, babies as a still. baby like that, oven. that cult of maternity yeah so when you're like unburdened from taking care of your kids still the state has like a direct interest in the health of your what you do with your body and like there was a lot of pressure to have kids young like if you didn't have kids before you're like 26 26 was considered like oh boy <laughs> wait what's the word for the next level of spinsterdom oh it's like barnacle or something what is it horny back thorny back thorny back is that right i think so yeah. barnacle <laughs> i love that barnacle <laughs> did you say barnacle yeah i think so i feel like thorny back isn't right thorn back maybe just without the e oh maybe yeah so yeah, this like motherhood as a form of responsibility to the state, right? Like your duty, your 
it's a service or whatever. And with that, you get this like real, like what you said, this holiness, this like enshrinement of motherhood and then extending from that like womanhood it's like a big honor you know again it's that like fake feminist thing where people think it's like feminist to like honor women you know what i mean like yeah when they're like women are goddesses and you're like jesus christ i just happen to have a vagina that almost always has a yeast infection really cool thank you well i just want to say something real quick or maybe just another example of this like cult of motherhood manifested in like some concrete thing is these like awards that were given to women during the soviet union so like the main one was called oh, yeah. mother heroine and it was like a literal medal you got the honorary title mother heroine was awarded to mothers bearing and raising 10 or more children and essentially it came with a medal and like all this honor or whatever but you also got like subsidies and so they were entitled to a number of privileges in terms of retirement pension the payment of public utility charges and the supply of food and other goods it was first established in 1944 so in this period right after the war or like at the very mm-hmm. tail end of the war and it has had like several iterations throughout history one thing i do want to say it does do sort of do that thing that i think angela davis is talking about in um woman race and class or whatever the order of those three words are where she's just talking about the need to like recognize that domestic tasks like cleaning and sewing taking care of the kids do have economic value and that that part of the economy is like sort of subsumed under like women's duties that for some reason people don't recognize as having as much value as things that men traditionally do and so in that way it like almost seems like it could be a good thing because the soviet union is like recognizing oh like this is actually providing a great value to the state but it's just that the outcome is still the same which is that you have to do it Okay, so the next clip we're going to play is from our very first episode when uh, we talked about Edward Snowden, who currently lives in Moscow. It's just a little anecdote uh, about what Putin allegedly said when he heard that Snowden was looking for asylum somewhere. In any case, yeah, Putin says, we sent some reps over to Hong Kong. They talked to him. They, via Putin, said, like, gave the message that he can stay there, he can stay in, in Russia as long as he completely stops any activity that would harm U.S.-Russian relations. Interestingly. So that's Putin. Putin said that. This is Putin's okay. like, yeah, what Putin said to his representatives who said to Snowden. What is supposedly, supposedly in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Okay. And then, um, you know, like we have our own state interests and we wouldn't want to, you know, ruin them by taking you. But And by activities, that means like basically... I don't know, but work like what, that he's releasing doing. Releasing documents or like saying snipey things. Yeah, and they shouldn't be like about specifically harming U.S.-Russian relations. He didn't say anti-Russian. I mean, right. he just phrased it that way. Yeah. And then he's like, but Snowden, who's he always sort of talks about Snowden this kind of like, it's a bit condescending. Like, he's a warrior <laughs> for human rights. He is, he said, I'm a, like, I'm a warrior, I'm a fighter, and I want to fight and this is Snowden speaking, according to Putin. Right. And I want you to be willing to like fight with me. You being Russian, Putin. Russian, oh, Russian. Right. Yeah, I mean, stand besides me. Putin. Who knows if like Snowden actually said this? Putin. Um, and like, the Russian representatives again passing along Putin's message were like, "No, we're not going to fight along with you. You could keep fighting. This, like, is, <laughs> this is all according to Putin's yeah. there." And it's right. like, Putin's like, Putin's like, I just said to him, you could just keep fighting by yourself, but we're not going to join you, but 
do your thing. And then he's like, and he just left. Like, he's like, and he left. Uh, and then he's like, and then two hours before his plane arrives in Moscow, I'm informed that he's landing in Moscow. Okay. This is a clip from one of our variety shows where we play different clips about Russia. And this particular one is from a speech by Vladimir Posner, who is an American slash French slash Russian journalist. This lecture is given by Vladimir Posner. And Vladimir Posner is a really interesting figure. I need to give a little background on him. Um, He was born in, I think, in France, but he also is Russian and lived in the States. So he has like... Yeah, multiple multiple nationalities, but he speaks Russian, importantly. And in during the Soviet Union from 79 until like the end of the Soviet Union, he was like the main American TV figure who was the spokesperson of the Soviet Union on American TV. He was living in America at the time, though? Yeah. And I think at one point, he yeah, he, he did some important like exchange TV shows, you know, like in Soviet Union and in America. But I do know that at that time during his Soviet, like again, 79 on during his Soviet period, he was much more well known in the States than in the Soviet Union. The interesting twist is that now he's actually like, he's back in Russia. He's a very well, very well known, very well respected journalist, TV figure, but he now has his own talk show like where he interviews people on channel one like on the main state channel it doesn't necessarily mean it's propagandistic no and that's an important thing about to always know about like state tv it's not like all state tv is like shit this lecture it's called the relationship between u.s and russia all the truth is that really what it's called (laughs) (laughs) every single truth laid out i think that's not 28 hours long I think what, that's what the random who uploaded onto YouTube named it. In any case, okay. it's it's an hour long. So, like, again, it's something worth watching that we'll post a link to. But now I'm just going to play a few minutes. You are? Okay, go ahead. Shut up. We're going to play a few. Yeah, that could have been totally smooth. Like, I'm okay. going to play it. Like, right, then people well, think I'll, that I actually do something. Out. I'll cut it out. I'll cut it out. Yeah, you won't. I know you won't. I, know. I won't. Of course I could. you won't. I could cut okay. it out because I have all the control over the sound because I'm the sound master. All right, ready? Yeah, I'm fucking ready. I think it's important to understand that once upon a time, many, many centuries ago, Russia was part of Europe, and Russian princes married French princes and kings, and there was this, uh, there was an exchange between the peoples of, of Russia and, and what would now be called Western Europe. But that lasted only until the Tartar invasion, which began in the late 12th century, and then for 300 years, Russia was cut off from the rest of the world completely. In fact, if there ever was a real Iron Curtain, that's when it existed. It disappeared off the face of what was then the Earth. And then 300 years later, when finally Russia liberated itself, threw off the, uh, the Tartar yoke, and traders from uh, Great Britain France and so on started coming to Russia. They found a country that they completely um, could not understand. Everything was different from what they were used to. It was a a different country. Um, People looked the same, but acted differently. And that view, to a certain extent, still exists. I have a friend who says, if we look different, if far, say, if we were polka-dotted or striped or of a different color, 
then the West would not expect us to be the same as them. But we look exactly like them, and therefore they say, why aren't you like us? Well, it's because of a, different, a very different history. But that goes way back to those times. And ever since then, Russia has been a kind of a, a mystery, sometimes threatening, sometimes not, but never fully accepted as in the family of nations, if you will, uh, by Europe and later on by the United States. I think it's important to understand when you talk about Russia and the United States, two countries that have pretty much determined the 20th century, to say the least. Uh, when you look at how different the two countries really are, there are people who say, oh, the Russians and the Americans are very alike. Nothing could be less true. They're not alike at all. Think about um, how America was born, born as a democracy, as a result of a war of independence, and born on the basis of certain ideals expressed in documents, such as the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution, at a time when in the world uh, there was no such country. There were kings and emperors and all of that, but this was the first modern democracy. And there was also something called the American Dream, which goes back when, uh, back, to a, back a long time, the idea being that if you were an American, if you were born here, or if you came here, you could be whoever you wanted to be, provided you tried hard enough. And then you have Russia, a country that, first of all, had its own slaves, but of its own people, not imported, not brought over from Africa, for instance, but the people were turned into slaves. Um, and they lived as slaves until the beginning, well, until 1861, when they were freed. It was a country that had never known democracy. It was a country run by the czars. And there was a very short period of time between approximately the 1880s and the beginning of the 20th century when Russia began to develop a market economy, began to have certain, certain elements of democracy. And that didn't last very long because of the revolution of 1917 when the Bolsheviks came to power. There is nothing in common between Russia and the United States in that sense or between Russians and Americans. The characters are very different. The mindsets are very different. Interestingly enough, there were relations between Tsarist Russia and the United States. In fact, the first ambassador to the court of Russia was a man by the name of John Adams, who became the fourth president of the United States. And one more ambassador, Buchanan, who was the 15th president. So there were these there was a certain relationship, not a very close one, but there was one. But after the revolution, the United States no longer recognized the legitimacy of what was then called the Soviet Union. And that lasted for a long time, until 1932, until, uh, until President Roosevelt came, but was elected, and that was when the uh, Soviet Union was recognized by the United States. The relationship between the two countries was always one of suspicion, a certain tenseness. And then, of course, the Soviet system, which was a system um, basically against all kinds of what you would call private ownership, against 
what generally might be called capitalism, um, led to fear uh, of that country. I don't know to what extent you remember things or know such things as the Palmer raids of the 1920s, Sacco and Vansetti, the Red Scare and all of that, but that was part of the reaction to the appearance of the Soviet Union. So there, this, this relationship, uh, well before the Cold War, well before the Iron Curtain, was already a very difficult one. The next segment is from our conversation with Olya Polyakova, who is an entrepreneur and activist who, who was arrested during a peaceful protest on June 12th. And this is her describing the cell that she was kept in for 12 days. Olya was arrested for 12 days on June 12th. Some of the immediate documentations that she did were, first of all, just posting on social media a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, that's very important for people who get arrested by police. It's super important to post everything in your social networks because it makes it more safe and people just know where you exactly are and what's happening with you. So it was like the very first reason why we were posting it, of course. Like the second reason is, of course, to um, show the situation and to get some help from outside. But number one reason was just security reason. Yeah, so sorry. So just I didn't finish introducing, I guess, the topic. But like the topic is that we want to use this example to talk about how you document your experiences, especially in kind of like extreme circumstances. Because I just know personally, like if I was arrested, I feel like I would have a lot of like an emotional response of like fear and confusion. And my first impulse might not be to immediately start like writing things down or like writing a text for what I'm going to say in court or something like that. It seems like, yeah, it's really important. Smith, do you have, can you help me formulate like how we want to ask a question about this. Maybe, Olya, you could actually just talk about this video you made and explain why you made it and like what your mental state was at the point that you were making it. You mean the video blog from the cell? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it was actually, the, I think, the last thing we posted from the cell. It was, I think, on the sixth or seventh day when we were staying there, even earlier, maybe fourth day. And the idea was just to show our friends what's happening with us. Um, actually, it is not really allowed to have a phone in the cell. They put me in the cell. They asked me to give them my phone and uh, all things, all valuable things. So I just gave them a solar panel <laughs> and I told that that's my phone and that put my phone like deeply in the clothes they didn't search they didn't check like didn't touch me so that's how I could really take it with me I think it was a bit like secret but we can we can speak it in English there was an opportunity to charge also in the cell uh, because there are some people who volunteer to bring the tea they have the access to the hot water that means they have the access to the electricity so they could charge the um, power banks okay. and from power banks you can charge because there's no outlets in of course yeah, yeah there is no nothing no electronic devices are allowed in the cell in russia <laughs> so if that's the case and we nobody really have like the phone officially so we couldn't post our video blog before we go out we just sent to our friends some pictures some small videos and we were shooting it for sending to our friends 
just to make them fun, like funny, uh, and uh, to show that we are okay and that nothing bad is happening with us. Uh, but we couldn't send it because it was like too big. <laughs> so we were so upset because we were actually planning to do it like every day. Shooting. Like vlog, yeah. There was a lot to talk. So we were upset that we couldn't send, so we didn't shoot more. And then when we were released, I posted it in the internet. And it was like extremely popular, even though we were just thinking it's just a shitty video from the about our everyday details, which were so boring for ourselves in the end. Uh, so when we were shooting, it was like something very, very simple and basic. And uh, we wanted to show the details, okay, how do we sleep, how do we eat, how do we go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's actually inside the cell, so it's important to explain as well. <laughs> I love that part. That part is like my favorite when they're like, yeah, the toilet and sink are in the cell. And it's the two, Olia and her housemate, like you guys. Yeah, flatmate, flatmate. Yeah, are both in the cell together. And yeah, they have like a system where when they want to use the bathroom, they like turn on the water. Yeah, to yeah. make the noise. <laughs> <laughs> and you call, wait, remind me, you say instead of like saying, I'm going to the bathroom, you say, I'm going to listen to the sound of the water. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm going to listen to the water. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. Yeah. And so um, we were talking in the in the video about the rights of of the arrested person who were printed which actually we have a lot of rights and they don't um, explain them much until you ask for them mm -hmm. because it's their obligation so it was the idea that you actually we have to know more and learn more about the rights what can we actually apply for because they have in the case when it's a little bit public arrest when we post a lot, when there are a lot of coverage in the media, they send a lot of checking organizations. I don't know, some of us organizations which check how we are doing are governmental. Some of them are more like informal. There could be like some people who check. And so those people also check if all of your rights are yeah and also if you know about all of them so it's good to know like you can apply for many things like for shower and medicine and this and that um, it's really important to know and also we wanted to show that it's not like the end of life you can survive there you can actually like read books and somehow the food is not that bad and you can chill there some people make fun of us like that we are not in the jail we are in some i don't know in some camping <laughs> some summer camp <laughs> this segment is from our russian rap episode and it is about one particular rapper named husky and a particular verse that we listen to and analyze Husky is like a rapper who's becoming really famous now and he's like the person that is actually cool right now. So if you compare him to Oxymiron, he's definitely not like mega famous in that way. He's he's famous enough that like, I don't know, you'll hear people like quoting his songs like I heard somebody like quoting one of his like maybe his most famous song that we'll play in a second, like outside of a bar in a hipstery setting. I wanted to play two of his songs. But I've been listening to him, and um, 
I'm gonna. I've trying to explain this to you before. Like I like the way his voice sounds. It's kind of like, in contrast to a lot of basically all the other rappers we just listened to, he doesn't articulate his words a lot, and that's sort of his style. He has like a smushy sound. phrases are really cool and we're gonna talk we're gonna do a close reading we're gonna do a close reading he, he like gets right into the chorus like it starts really quickly it's kind of jarring and the lyrics are really jarring he's literally saying i don't want to be pretty or like handsome i don't want to be rich i want to be a machine gun shooting faces <laughs> sorry it sounds really rough in english i'm not really gonna analyze like i don't want to be I'm not gonna analyze those notes. <laughs> I think what it means is that he does not want to be pretty or rich, but instead would like to be a gun. <laughs> Shooting people in the face. But that's not like an example of why I find his lyrics interesting. Usually he has like that's not the example. He has like these really nice turns of phrase. I also want to be a gun. <laughs> <laughs> like um this the first verse has these opens with these two lines. Varenje i solnce na kazirke, v rukzak je stikat varenje na sobstvenem jazike. Okay, so varenje is like jam from, and then i solnce, jam from the sun, like jam as in what you eat, on like a visor. But I think actually this word refers to that sun guard thing when you're driving a car and you pull that like flap down yeah. to block yeah. the sun from your eyes. Yeah. In my backpack are verses... In my own language. But the really cool thing about this line, what I like about this line, I'm completely winging this, I wasn't preparing. Winging it, I wasn't preparing to analyze this particular line, but I really... I like how he talks about jam. <laughs> like, I, I really like... I love jam. A couple of things. I just like the line, the backpack line, because stikat varenya is the word for like verses or poems. He's doing an internal rhyme. Vorenje is stikat varenje is one word, but it comes from tvor is to create. So it comes from a totally different root, but it has, it's doing an internal rhyme with varenje, the jam from the first line. Oh, okay. Stikat varenje, varenje. But it's not like, I'm saying internal rhyme, but that's probably the incorrect term. I just mean it's not like the main rhyme. It's like an echo word. The main rhymes are at the end of the lines, like kazirke is the visor, and then nasobsum yazike, so they rhyme keke. So we get this nice little like repeated 
Varenya Varenya sound uh, of poems and jam. And then na sobstunem yazike is like special expression of ownership. My own. Yeah, it has like a private personal sense. So that that's just like a shade to know about. But then, so it says like, in my backpack are poems on my, in my own language. I'm translating that as in my own language. And I think that's like the literal translation. But the word in Russian for language and for tongue are the same. Okay. And I, I just like that, the way that sounds, because it's like, in my backpack are poems on my own tongue. And also just poems in my language. That's nice. Yeah. But we don't know what jam on visor means, do we? <laughs> I imagine you're just gonna skirt over that extremely weird thing. I just immediately got that it was like red. The sun is red. Wait, what is the line? Like jam from the sun on a visor. <laughs> it sounds so bad. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't sound. It, it really doesn't sound bad. I just like don't under. That's not like a phrase that we say in America. It's not a phrase. It's not like a phrase. He's being poetic. It's not a phrase, Smith. It's not like people are like, oh, I have jam on my visor again. To close out the episode, we're going to play a clip of Lily reading a poem she translated by Boris Slutsky titled, what is it titled? I was liberating Ukraine. All right. I was liberating Ukraine. I was liberating Ukraine. Walked through its Jewish villages. Yiddish, their language, long since a ruin, has died out and for three years has been ancient. No, it didn't die out. It was cut out and burnt out. It seems they were too sharp-tongued. Everyone was killed and no one survived. Only their dawns and dusks in their verses, some sweet, some bitter, some burning, blazing with bitterness. In the past, perhaps too thorny. In the present, real. Described by Markish and Hofstein, Thoroughly sought for by Bergelson, this world, which even by Einstein is incapable of being reattached to life. But neither like a seed, nor like chaff, but like black ash it is scattered, so that any word would raise a hundred times more there where the ruins stood gaping. For around three years now, how ancient, how antique, that language, like a person, was killed. For around three years, we've been poking fingers into books, into the alphabet, like cuneiform, forgotten. That's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at She's in Russia. Follow me on Arena, Smith Freeman, Arena, A-R-E dot N-A. It's where we post a lot of videos, music, pictures related to each episode. So you get a little more content there that won't be anywhere else. Sign up for our monthly newsletter at She's in Russia dot com. If you want us to answer any questions about Russia, give us a call and leave us a voicemail at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six and we will see you next week my pop screen my poop screen poop protects my mic when i try to poop on it <laughs> <laughs> Ew! what is your problem <laughs> actually